Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 19. This is the last in our short little series about surprising or perplexing passages from the Bible. So I'll be reading from Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dripped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword and with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today marks the last day of my short ministry with you all. I'm incredibly thankful for the last six months and the ways you have helped me to learn and grow. But I'll be transparent and admit that on this, my last Sunday as your interim pastor, and Christ the King Sunday no less, I feel a little deflated by the preaching task. And here is my problem. I have no surprises for you this morning. That's bad news for a sermon series on surprising parts of the Bible. But there is no secret mystical key for unlocking the book of Revelation. There are no surprises about the identities of the people or the characters in this passage. There is no secret timeline. 
And after three weeks of hearing about God killing or trying to kill certain people, I would guess that you're not all that surprised to see a pile of dead bodies at the end of this passage as well. At least this time they seem to have it coming. If you've come looking for me to tell you about which modern-day nations will battle against the rider on the white horse and where and when this last battle will happen, then I'm afraid I have no surprises for you either. That kind of sensationalized political interpretation of Revelation has a way of being proved wrong, or at least insufficient, in very short order. Now, in 1991, John Walvert issued a revised version of his book entitled Armageddon, Oil, and the Middle East Crisis, where he argued that the stage was set for an end-time showdown in the Middle East. His argument was that the conflict in the Persian Gulf during the administration of George Bush Sr. fully or fulfilled the conditions exactly as the Bible anticipates and its prophecy of the end times. So 300,000 books were printed, tens of thousands of dollars were poured into a national marketing campaign for the book, and then in December of the same year, the Soviet Union collapsed, and Walver's books were dumped on the market for a tiny fraction of the price because he had identified the Soviet Union as one of the superpowers in the final end times battle of Armageddon. All of a sudden, the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. So his book is for sale on Amazon for one cent, if you're interested in that kind of sensationalized, politicized interpretation of the passage at hand. Now, of course, this passage has some interesting imagery and symbolism, and we'll get there, but I don't expect it will surprise anyone. Maybe the real surprise this morning is that it is not surprising precisely because you have actually been preparing all year to hear about this rider on the white horse. And what happens in this story is exactly the trajectory of the gospel message that you have hopefully heard proclaimed every week. A couple weeks ago, in the last large group meeting for our high school youth group for Impact, the youth and leaders spent a good chunk of time I see you smiling, Harvey. <laughs> Spent a good chunk of time together in small groups trying to read and interpret different passages from Revelation. And I was looking for some sermon help, so I asked one of the groups to please look at this passage. So one group drew up this scene, and their drawing was chaotic and creative. Then in the end, we shared what we had learned from each passage. One of the young men in this group shared what they learned. Evil will die. Friends, that is the trajectory of the gospel message that begins in Advent and culminates on this Christ the King Sunday. Fragile, helpless baby Jesus is now the triumphant rider on the white horse who will finally put an end to evil. Now John's vision that Jesus would destroy evil would have encountered the churches John was writing to as both good news and bad news, both a promise and a threat. At the beginning of Revelation, John addresses seven churches in the Roman province of Asia. 
Each address is really from Christ. And so each one starts off with a short description of Christ that highlights one of Christ's attributes. Now, I'm especially interested in two churches, two of the churches, because they start off with descriptions of Christ that we see here again in Revelation 19. So in Revelation 2, verse 12, John writes to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has a sharp, two-edged sword. The same sword comes out of Christ's mouth in Revelation 19. To the church in Pergamum, Christ says, I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. Yet you're holding fast to my name. You did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And in the next verse, you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Enter Revelation 19. The vision of Christ with a sword coming out of his mouth to make war. So the word to Pergamum has to do with the sword. Next, John addressed the church in Thyatira. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like flames of fire. This is one of the descriptions from Revelation 19 as well. Christ says to them, I know your works, your love, faith, service, and patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first, but this I have against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Christ goes on to warn that those people who follow this false prophet, that he will destroy her and her followers, so they ought to repent. He says, I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. Again, enter Revelation 19, the man on the white horse with the blazing eyes. His eyes, like blazing fire, are able to search hearts and minds so that he can give to each as they deserve. Now, I don't bring these two churches up in order to comb through the finer details of the symbolic figures of Jezebel and Balaam, but rather to observe that when these images of Christ that overlap with our passage this morning come up in the addresses to the churches, in both cases, the church is a, a mixed bag. It's not all good or all bad, like some of the other churches. The words of Christ to them are both good news and potentially bad news, both promise and threat. On the one hand, Christ is promising them that they will overcome their hardships when he returns with his sharp sword and blazing eyes. The dragon and the beast and the false prophets would be destroyed. On the other hand, they may find that the evil Christ sets out to destroy may also be found in them. That they had in some ways befriended the beast, even taken on some of its attributes. 
Now, we may be thousands of years and thousands of miles removed from Pergamum and Thyatira, but we are not so different from them. The rider on the white horse with the sword coming out of his mouth and with fire in his eyes may encounter us the same way. This scene of judgment is both good news and bad news, both promise and threat. There's a promise that Christ will finally defeat the evil we see and experience. In this month's edition of The Banner, there was a news item about abuse at a Sioux Center Christian school out in Iowa. This especially caught my eye because I grew up there as a young kid. Now, in 2017, a complaint was made against a teacher at Sioux Center Christian School, which prompted an investigation, led to him being fired and eventually arrested. He was eventually charged with 146 counts of sexual misconduct. So the teachers, staff, and others from the community gathered for a conference held in light of this abuse. And the counselor, Dan Ollander, asked them, how is your sword play? The banner reports that Ollander's strategy for healing and combating the abuse was to encourage teachers and staff to sharpen their swords by using the Bible and other resources to be knowledgeable and effective in fending off and defeating evil, like the evil their community had experienced. For the people in Sioux Center who have been victimized and traumatized, the image of a sword is a promise. The promise that the word of God is an effective tool for combating evil in the present, but also that Christ will come again with a sword to finally put an end to evil for good. But the blazing eyes and sharp sword, no less the feast on dead bodies at the end, may also encounter us this morning as a threat. An old prayer of confession asks God's forgiveness for those things our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. What are those things our lips tremble to name? Maybe it's a festering hatred toward a family member or a coworker. Maybe our lips tremble to name it because we actively nurse those feelings of hatred and animosity all week long, every chance we get. Maybe our lips tremble to name the deep and morbid dependency we have on alcohol, food, drugs, or pornography. Maybe our lips tremble to name the ways we have grossly and abundantly misrepresented the gospel message of grace. Or the ways we've sown discord or discontent, or the ways we have cozied up to systems of power that exploit vulnerable people. C.S. Lewis has this picture in his fictional book, Paralandra, where a man, Ransom, finds himself on a very young planet. It's kind of Eden of sorts. A dragon starts popping up here and there, till finally the dragon lays down next to Ransom and puts its head on his knees. Do you know, Ransom says to the dragon, that you're a considerable nuisance, but the dragon never moves. So Ransom decides he had better try and make friends with it. He stroked the hard, dry head, 
creature took no notice. Then his hand passed lower down and found softer surface, even a chink in the mail. Now that was where it liked to be tickled. So it grunted and shot out a long, cylindrical, slate-colored tongue to lick him. It rolled round on its back, revealing an almost white belly, which Ransom kneaded with his toes. Lewis writes, Ransom's acquaintance with the dragon prospered exceedingly, and in the end, it went to sleep. The blazing eyes and sharp sword of the man on the white horse encounter us as a threat if we, like Ransom, have made friends with the dragon, if we have cozied up to it, rubbed its belly, and let it rest beside us. These words may be for us this morning a call to repentance. But I think we're missing something of the gospel message if we leave it there, as equal tension between promise and threat. The blazing eyes and the sharp sword are symbols of judgment, but they are not the only symbols attributed to this man on the white horse. He's called the Word of God, and look at what he's wearing. Crowns, robe dipped in blood. And remember how I said there weren't any surprises in this passage? That's because this rich symbolism doesn't just come from nowhere. I mean, certain parts of it echo the birth, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. These are gospel symbols that echo the same story our church calendar tells us every year. So the surprise this morning is that you have actually been preparing all year to meet this man on the white horse. He is the word of God. Recall last Advent, waiting, waiting, waiting for Christmas Day, when the word became flesh. The rider on the white horse is the same word of God that became flesh. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Christmas prepared us to meet this word of God in Revelation 19. He also has a robe dipped in blood. Now, commentators disagree about whose blood is on this robe. It could be his enemy's blood. But the battle hasn't started yet. He comes into battle with blood already on his robes. Perhaps it is his own. Recall that whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we enter into the night before Jesus' death. Maybe you even came to celebrate the Lord's Supper on Good Friday last year. Here Jesus told his disciples, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He has already spilled his own blood and given his life to rescue us from the claim that sin and death have on our lives. So Good Friday, and actually every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, have prepared us to meet this man with the blood on his robe. And he rides a white horse. A white horse is a symbol for victory. He is victorious before the battle even starts because he has already defeated death in his resurrection. 
Recall the celebration, the hope, and the joy of Easter morning. I would guess that there were even some splashes of white up here in flowers or banners or decorations. Easter morning prepared us to meet this man on the white horse. And the man on the white horse comes with many crowns. Now, previously in Revelation, the beast from the sea had worn the crowns, was claiming power and authority that ultimately did not belong to it, but belonged to Christ. And now Christ rightfully wears the crowns. He has the power and the authority rightfully given to him by God the Father. He is the true King of kings and Lord of lords whose return will mean the fulfillment of his kingdom. So today is Christ the King Sunday. Today we see this victorious king who has won victory for his own by giving up his own life. So as we see this vision of the man on the white horse, we maybe receive it as both promise and a threat. But if you've been around for a while, you'll also see the gospel message of God's grace freely given through the person and work of Christ, who is the word of God. The sweet promise of this gospel message is that Christ has taken on the burden of the threat so that we can look forward to life in his kingdom, not death. But if you're still not convinced that the good promise outweighs the threat, then stick around for another year because you'll begin the story again next week. You'll begin the Christian year with the end already in mind. The same word who became flesh and dwelt among us will see to it that evil will finally be destroyed. Until that day, we can say with the church of the ages, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord our God, thank you for this, the gift of your word. Help us to receive what we have heard. Lead us to repentance and help us to find assurance in your grace freely given. Lord, we wait in eager anticipation for your reign to be made fully known. We eagerly wait for the day when there will be no more evil, no more crying or pain. Sustain us and sanctify us by your spirit until that day. Amen.